What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, I'm here with Andrew Gazdecki, the founder of MicroAcquire. How's it going, Andrew? Doing well, Corlin. Nice to uh, finally connect with you. Yeah, big fan of uh, everything you've done. Uh, before we start recording, I said this guy's influenced millions of entrepreneurs, and it's badass. So, um, sad to be here, man. Yeah, glad to have you here as well. You're doing quite a few things. You've got MicroAcquire, which is, I think, one of the best ways to basically sell your bootstrapped startup or buy a bootstrapped startup. You've got business apps, another startup that you founded uh, and exited in 2018. I think you sold it for many tens of millions of dollars if, if, if my guess is correct i don't know if it's public that i've never shared the exact number i only my wife i promised my wife i wouldn't and the reason being is it's like it's like a weird flex mm. like it's either like not enough or like you're bragging mm. uh, you know so i always just kind of say i sold it and made it <laughs> Well, my guess is you're being humble. I don't know the number, but I like to I like to bring people on the show and, and I guess flex for you and build you up. Uh, you also have another project that I think is super interesting called Bootstrappers.com. And did you did you buy Bootstrappers from someone else? Did it exist before you had it? It was just available on GoDaddy for like 30k or something like that, and I was like, give me that, and then I bought it. So Bootstrappers.com. I want to talk about this. You tweeted about this. You said coming very soon. Bootstrappers.com, the only publication dedicated to bootstrapping startups. No funding rounds, no valuations, no unicorns, just inspiring and motivating company building stories. And when I saw that tweet, it, was like, it spoke to me because I'm also kind of on this crusade to sort of push back against this landscape we have where the biggest publications only ever write about venture-funded startups. And there's so many people doing amazing things and building life-changing businesses that just don't ever get any press and you can't even find their stories or learn from them. So I'm curious, like, why did you decide the world needed this? What's, what's your motivation? Uh, yours. <laughs> you just, I mean, you just did the pitch for me. Um, there's a little bit of beef marketing in there. I'm sure mm -hmm. you know about it where I was kind of calling TechCrunch out quite a bit. I want to clarify, you know, I have no problems with TechCrunch. It was just, it was fun and good <laughs> marketing. There's a good section in the book called um, Rework uh, mm -hmm. about beef marketing. Um, so I figured, yeah, let's, let's call out the biggest publication around and get aroused out of people. And that kind of built momentum. And, and then it also helped people like agree, like, yeah, you kind of only write about venture backed businesses. And some of the writers mm -hmm. um, were a little defensive, surprisingly, like they would say, yeah, we do. And I'd say that maybe I'm wrong. Can you tell me the percentage of bootstrap startups you've written about versus <laughs> the percent? And then they'd Get real quiet. Like, yeah. So the thought was just to bring light to an, an alternative path of entrepreneurship that I think is more probable in terms of how you define success. I saw it as an opportunity as well to just kind of inspire people. And um, I, I candidly grew up, you know, reading all the tech blogs and stuff like that. And there wasn't as many like funding rounds being announced. There was partnerships like business apps as an example, um, we had like 
you know, version two covered. We had product updates covered, partnerships, revenue milestones, like really like, and we break down how we got there. And now it's just funding round after funding round after funding round. So I felt, you know, that style of um, storytelling had kind of gone away. And so. Why do you think it is that the sort of mainstream tech press writes about funding rounds? Like to me, that's the most boring thing in the world. I'm going to go on TechCrunch and like the homepage is going to be so-and-so company you've never heard of just raised, you know, $10 million, $5 million, $50 million. And as like a reader, like, what does that do for me? You know, what is it like that doesn't inspire me? It doesn't chart. I mean, like, I guess there's some utility if I'm an investor or if I'm trying to find like an early stage company to join as an employee or something. But other than that, like it's it's weird to me that that kind of story gets so much play in the mainstream press compared to like the much more inspiring, shareable stories of people succeeding, everyday people succeeding and making millions of dollars and changing their lives in the process. I mean, for one, it's not a story. It's a, it's just news. Like, bleh, like you know, 10 articles a day of the same thing. Yeah, it's funny when you, you tweeted something about uh, how TechCrunch only writes about these types of stories, kind of doing the beef marketing thing you were mentioning earlier. My, my favorite tweet was like, because uh, <laughs> when I write these tweets, I'm laughing hard <laughs> behind them. <laughs> I wrote like, TechCrunch is a great PR agency for venture capitalists. I highly recommend them or something like that. Um, and that one got like a thousand likes. <laughs> their, their guest speakers are venture back founders, VCs, you know, TechCrunch Disrupt is just built. It's, it all revolves around venture capital. So they're essentially a venture capital blog in my view. And that's, right. That's totally cool. Um, but again, it, it opens up a whole new opportunity and opened my eyes to like, wow, no one's writing about this stuff and people want to hear about it. You know, so that's how we kind of MVP, you know, should we actually commit to this? Because it's a lot of work to interview founders, get the transcriptions of the interview, um, distill the story down, you know, share it with the founders so they're comfortable. Because a lot of times when we write about um, these startups, it's their first time that they've been covered in the media. So, you know, imagine your first time, like ever having, you know, someone write about you. It's like their moment. And so we go back and forth and in, in editing with them. It's it, it just feels more rewarding to like have that style. It is a little bit of a mouthpiece for the venture capital industry. And I think that like the tech scene in general, the startup scene is it's like, it's a scene, you know, there are people who are cool and stylish to be seen around, you know, they're celebrities. There's a lot of like status seeking that goes into building a tech startup nowadays. And it's not just the practical nature of it, which is, hey, I want to build a company that makes me feel better and that makes my customers feel better. And that like, you know, makes my life better, my family's life better, and my employee's life better. It's kind of like, ah, I want to be written about in TechCrunch. You know, I want to raise from this particular venture capitalist. And I think one of the things that you and I have in common is like a pretty healthy skepticism of that scene. Uh, in fact, one of your tweets I want to talk about is you said that $1 million of profit is better than $100 million of venture capital. Startup founders, this should be your goal. And like you put your money where your mouth is. I mean, you bootstrapped multiple companies. Why are you personally partial to going the bootstrap route and the self-funded route rather than raising from investors? Oh, I guess personal experience. I mean, with business apps, I started, so business apps was my first real company. I started that when I was 21 in college and it was a, like a no code app builder. It's been disrupted like eight times over. It was like, <laughs> to, like we could have, it, it probably could have been like a 
really large business, but I raised a hundred, hundred K for that business had a really, really good mentor. His name was Christian Friedman. He built a company called uh, build.com. So if you need toilets or stuff, like it's like Home Depot online, but he grew the business at 3 billion in GMB, never raised any capital. Wow. He's the closest you'll ever get to Ari Gold. He's hilarious. Um, and we just got along. We just, he didn't angel invest a lot. So it wasn't like an, an angel investor that has a portfolio of like 300 companies and like, you'll get five minutes of your time a month. Like we would talk on like a daily, if not weekly basis, definitely monthly. And he helped me build the company. And he would always press me like, why do you need to raise capital? Like why? Because we at one point uh, moved to San Francisco, started the company in Chico. Um, and we met with all the top tier firms and even got close to some term sheets. And I just remember telling like one VC in particular who was really close. I just said, listen, like I, I really appreciate it. We did the full partner meeting and everything. And I just said, I don't know what we'd spend the money on because we were so profitable. And then when I went to go sell the business, I was able to get a great outcome. And so I just feel like it's a more realistic path. I mean, with business apps though, I do have to admit, like I, I was kind of in like the right place at the right time. Like mm -hmm. the iPhone just came out and I said, every business is going to try to get on that. So I jumped on it. Quick. Right. But to build a business um, without investors to like one or two or $3 million and then sell it for, you know, five to $10 million. Yeah. To me, that is a very realistic goal for entrepreneurs. And then if you sell that business for, let's say even $5 million and you walk away with like three after taxes or something like that, you're kind of set for life. Like, you know, you can buy a house cash, put some money in like, I'm not going to give investing advice, but um, like, I just, I always just kind of wonder like, what more do you need? You know, you can avoid like a decade of like pain and suffering trying to build, you know, a public. And then do you really want to be a public company CEO? I don't want to go on CNBC <laughs> and talk about like my earning reports. You've also tweeted about the feeling of success, you said. And I'm just going to keep going through your tweets. I pulled up like 20 of your tweets that I want to talk about. But you said when your startup is able to reach some level of success, the feeling is hard to describe. It's a rush for sure. And you've had this a couple of times. Obviously, business apps sold for an undisclosed amount. But micro require. I think you bootstrapped it to almost like $270,000 in revenue in the first 12 months. And that was back in like February of this year. So it's, I'm sure, no, higher no, now. No, we bootstrapped to, I think, um, before we raised um, our seed round, we were at like 600000 Okay. Wow. And, okay. And that, and that was just me. So that was As literally, a solo founder. Yeah. That was like human sacrifice. <laughs> I was doing all sport, all product. Every newsletter that you read, every social media post, every every piece of content. But I just I felt the marketplace needed to exist that badly. Um, and this would be a tip for entrepreneurs as well, is if you're thinking about a business to start, the first thing I did was I I really wanted to uh, serve a customer that I I love. Cause I'm a big believer that the founders that go the distance love what they're doing. And I love entrepreneurs. I love startups. I love talking with people like you. So I knew if I got that part right, you know, I started the business without even a business model. Um, I, I had no idea how I was going to make money. Yeah. I just, after going through two acquisitions, I just saw a very fragmented market 
And as entrepreneurs, we're not taught how to sell businesses and we're not given tools how to sell businesses. You can hire bankers um, if your business is of a certain caliber. Mm-hmm. Um, investment banks typically you know, are looking for the 100, 200, $500 million acquisitions. You'll see brokers on the lower end. Um, but there's no like education on like from a from a seller's perspective, from a founder's perspective, like what is due diligence? What are the legal steps? How do I prepare for this? Um, I just saw a market that was just fully geared towards buyers. And so I thought, you know, it, there needs to be a resource and a place for arguably the most important part of the founder's journey, which is the exit. And so mm. I, I have a pretty crazy work ethic, but that ties back to um, my point is just, if you enjoy what you love, it's not, it doesn't really feel like work. It's like your favorite video game. So every right. minute I had to spare, I'm just, instead of playing like Madden or Call of Duty, I'm playing <laughs> Microwire, you know, like. It's your own video game. So let's talk about this journey to start Microwire because I think it's not obvious that like this is something that the world needed. You know, like if you look at the sort of landscape, there's already Flippa where people were sort of selling their websites. There's Thomas Smale's business. I forget the name of his business, um, but he helps people sell companies as well. He's been on the show. There's a lot of different marketplaces where people essentially, oh, FE International, people can sell their SaaS businesses. But you said that you had like a unique insight when you started MicroAcquire, and that became like your competitive advantage. And there was something that was obvious to you that wasn't necessarily obvious to others at the time. What was it like coming up with the idea to start MicroAcquire? Why did you think this is something that can work? And it's something that I should start. It really started with this. People are starting startups at a rate that we've never seen before. It's never been easier to start a company, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just doing the math on those, you know, not all those companies are going to reach venture scale. Um, 0.0. So one in 40 companies successfully raised venture capital. So I kind of made a bet that like there's this market of bootstrap startups that don't have an easy way to sell their business. They're being created at a rate that we've never before seen in history. And there needs to be a place to bring both buyers and sellers together and allow founders to sell their business without any friction, completely Mm -hmm. free. That was kind of it. Just basically, like I kind of thought about my uh, personal scenario with business apps where I need a marketplace where I can, you know, just give you a high level overview of what my business does, the metrics, that sort of stuff. And then buyers reach out. I have full control over who I speak to so I can improve or deny buyers as they reach out and there's, there's no cost. And so I can just kind of test the waters. I can right before really committing to a broker or cause what a broker will typically do um, is, you know, they put a price on your business and like you're going to market and sometimes there can be misalignment with, you know, depending on who you work with, because their goal is to sell your business as quickly as possible. But if you have a business where like a business apps, it took me nine years to sell that business with a broker, you know, we'd probably be seeing, you know, a price tag of like four to five times profit or something like that. I would never sell, I would never sell my business for that amount. No way. So you know, I was always open for offers. Um, and we finally got an offer that, you know, we felt was very generous. Uh, we took it, you know, I think microquire allows founders to kind of step into acquisitions without fully jumping in the pool and just saying like, Hey, I'm basically going to fire sale this thing to the highest bidder, if that makes sense. Um, but it needs to be private because if 
your employees or your customers find out that you're selling your business, you get questions ranging from, am I getting fired or am uh-huh. I becoming a millionaire or a billionaire, everything in between. And so, yeah, that was, I just thought that was cool. It was like, Hey, yeah, let's, um, let's just make this completely free. And I ran it uh, for free for about a year. And then we eventually layered on the premium buyer subscription program. And that was a request from a founder. Uh, he said like, I've gotten like 50 offers from potential buyers. Like how do I sort through all these? Yeah. Uh, and I said, uh, what if we put up like a paywall and then we, we, so now we vet the buyers. We make sure you have a, a working LinkedIn profile. Right. Um, you have a picture. We'll upload it for you. A proper bio. Just so like as a, as a founder, when these requests come, come in, it's not like Johnny one, one, two, 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 four. And I have right. no idea who that guy <laughs> or gal is. Um, I want to see where you worked. I want to see references. I want to see, right. like, I want to be able to do due diligence on you. So that was another, I think, unique insight was just, you know, the bet I made that was obvious to me, but not obvious to others at the time was M&A activity was going to increase given the amount of startups that were being created. And there needed to be a more efficient way of selling these businesses outside of brokers or investment banks. Um, and something a little bit more professional than what you would see on, say, Flippa or some of the other just sort of Craigslist-style marketplaces. You know, we wanted to be high quality, quality over quantity, vetted listings rather than just anything goes. No, we don't list domains. We don't list content sites. We focus on mostly just bootstrap, SaaS, e-commerce. We've started moving into like crypto businesses and like communities, newsletters, I'm curious about this this um, this sort of like ideation phase, though, because there's so many, I guess in a way with MicroAcquire, you kind of focus on people who are at the end. You know, these are people who are well, willing to sell their businesses. And with Andy Hackers, I talked to so many people who are in the beginning. They're like, what should I even start? What should I do? And I think it's inspiring for a lot of people to hear about your early days. Like, how did you even come up with this idea? And it's something like you've done multiple times where you've seen like, hey, here's a trend, right? Like mobile apps are growing or hey, like uh, the number of companies is growing. And so then you place a bet, right? Businesses are going to need to build mobile apps or people are going to need to sell their companies in a frictionless way. How can other people do what you're doing and like spot these trends and then figure out the right way to capitalize on them? I would look for, you know, founder market fit. What I mean by that is, you have a unique insight into a market based on your personal life experience. And that does two things. One, it gives you a competitive advantage because you, you've been through the problem that you're trying to solve. You understand it. You felt when you, when you feel a problem when you feel like pain, like selling business apps. Oh my, like, gosh, like that was so hard. <laughs> like we went out to market in 2016 and um, or 15. We hired an investment bank. Their minimum fee was 800k, 800,000 dollars. I paid them 150k up front. We did a full road show. We actually had offers. One was uh, 30 million from a, a P firm, where 20 million was going to go to shareholders on secondary, and then 10 on primary for 70 percent of the business. And then we had one of the big do-yourself website builders. You probably guess the name of them. So we had these real offers, but it was, number one, it was exhausting. And then two, it was very expensive to have this process done. And so I still had gas in the tank. So I said no to both offers, kept going, and then sold the business um, three years later after we, you know, 
got a lot of good feedback from potential acquirers on, you know, what we could potentially do. And most of that was just really kind of growing revenue, reducing churn, et cetera. And then funny enough, the private equity firm that we sold to, we had interacted five years earlier prior to the investment bank. And the reason I know that is because during due diligence, uh, you got you have to like go through all your NDAs and everything you signed and stuff like that. And I found an NDA from them because we had a short conversation and I was like, oh, um, but I just always wish there was a way where I could just go, hey, my business is for sale silently, privately, none of my investors know. And then if a conversation leads to an acquisition, fantastic. If not, mm-hmm. I'll just keep growing the business. And what's the first thing you do when you say, okay, I found this trend. <laughs> I feel it in my bones. I think the world can be this way, even if others don't agree with me, the world's not this way. Like, how do you make that into a reality? How did you do that with MicroAcquire? You have to make, um, in my opinion, a bet on something that, that is obvious to you that will become obvious to others over time. And you just have to be patient. You know, product market fit for some is found in a month. For some, it's found in a decade. You know, if you can have the endurance and the patience to just really believe. And you also have to know it's a tricky balance. You got to know when to, you know, say, Hey, this isn't working and pivot or maybe shut it down. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with shutting a business down, move on to the next one. Yeah. Um, And right now we're only talking about my successes, but I have had so many failed businesses. Like (laughs) I was starting businesses all the way through high school during every year in college. I had this, thing I would do, um, instead of getting a job, I would start a new business. And some of the businesses were awful, <laughs> like um, everything from, uh, these are kind of embarrassing, but I had like a World of Warcraft uh, referral website, but it taught me Google ads and taught me like design. Um, and the business crashed when the pay-per-click ads for, you know, buy World of Warcraft gold went from like 10 cents, like $10. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be like rich all through high school or college <laughs> for a minute. Cause we made like, or I made uh, like $50,000 in like three months. And then it just plummeted because the, the pay-per-click ads were too expensive and the business. Anyways, but you learned, um, you tried, but something, I learned if it doesn't work. You learn. So I guess maybe that would probably be my main advice is like your first business doesn't have to be like a heart, like a big marketplace attacking a big market. Um, it could be a blog, it could be, you know, a community, it could be a newsletter, it could be, you know, something very simple. But I think, I think the key is just, you know, again, finding something that you're passionate about and just diving in sooner rather than later, because there's really never been a better time to start a company because there's resources like indie hackers, where if you need support, like a community, which I think a lot of founders could definitely benefit from. You know, all of that, I didn't have that a decade ago. Like a decade ago, we were all trying to figure out like what is the best like way to have, what, how, how does pricing work? How to, how to build a sales team, how to properly market the business, how to do PR. Like, you know, we didn't have all this information available today. So, you know, look at, be bold and don't be afraid to fail and be, be, you know, willing to fail, you know, because when you fail, you learn the most I've failed and my failures have taught me more than my successes. And I think just having a love for startups is, is key as well. For so many people, it's hard to just come up with an idea that has some chance of working, let alone an idea that somehow dovetails 
with their passion and what they authentically want to do. How do you think people can figure out what it is they're going to enjoy working on and also have that constraint combined with something that can actually work and make money? So before I launched MicroQuire, I was very specific about the type of business I wanted to build. And most of it was the stuff I didn't want to do. Like for one, I didn't want to manage a huge team. So right now we're 10 and it's awesome. Like I just basically, we can all fit in one Zoom screen. We joke around. Uh, I love everyone I work with. I care about them deeply. Two, I wanted a marketplace because it's low on R&D business apps. We have like an iOS team, Android team back. Like it just, the amount of like engineering power that was required for that company was kind of ridiculous. And I wanted to serve a customer that I love. So I think if you just kind of create like a framework around like, okay, this product's going to cost me a lot of money to make. Let's, what kind of product can I create? that kind of won't put me in like debt or something like that, or require me to raise capital, write down what you don't like to do. If you don't like doing meetings all the time, start looking at businesses that don't require a large team. Or if you want to build a really big company, obviously write down all the stuff that is required for that. And also the things that you don't want to do as you're going along that journey, because yeah, like you got you want to you want to enjoy the journey and not focus so much on the destination because right. um, trust me, once once you get there, you know, it's it's awesome. But everyone has those stories of like you exit a business and, you know, you talk. I talk about it all the time, like the good old days. Like remember when right. We used to do that? Remember when, yeah, we were we were up to our hands and knees and, you know, support tickets and all this code that needed to be written. And that, those are kind of the, yeah. the glory days. It's kind of like the fun part. It's it's a hard question. The question you're asking, I think, is a question that people need to just really think about deeply and just be honest with themselves. Like, if you're good at marketing, you know, maybe you should create something that helps marketers. If you're a developer, maybe you yeah. should create a product that helps developers somehow. You have a unique insight there, and you also have good founder market fit there in those markets. Right. So that, have- that that's probably where I would start. I kind of a similar process with indie hackers where I, I think at the time I wrote down a list of like seven or eight things that I'm like, these are things I absolutely do not want to do or do want to do. And like, unfortunately for me, those were all like experience one lessons where I had to like start companies that failed in these ways or that made me unhappy in these ways for years before I realized I needed to put these things on my checklist. But it was things like, am I building something that like I can talk to friends and family about? Because after starting a couple businesses where like I couldn't explain it to anybody and they just didn't care, I was like, you know what? I don't want to spend you know, 60, 70 hours a week working on something. And then I talk to my friends about it and their eyes glaze over. So like for me, that was an important part of enjoying what I was working on. Can I build something that's meaningful and beneficial to the world? Because I just knew that eventually I would want to feel like there was some greater purpose to what I was doing besides just like, will this make me money? Which is also important for me. Another thing on my list was like, what kind of effort will it take to keep this running long term? You know, is this going to run me ragged and, you know, I'll never be able to take a vacation. I'll never be able to take a break. Like, is this going to be something that like, will get, in some ways, easier to run over the long run, which is part of why I started a community, because it's sort of people-powered. Another thing in there was, like, is this something that, like, I can actually market and distribute to people? Like, is it basically, are the people who are my customers and, and fans people that I know where they hang out and, like, talking to them? That, know, like, part, I don't wanna... that part is so key. Um, because, I mean, I, I'm sure you see this a lot on indie hackers, but people build these products, and they don't, understand like you gotta you gotta market these products now like you gotta go find customers but what you just said you know you had 
founder market fit where you understood where these potential users or customers, however you call them, um, hang, where do they hang out? And you went there and you, you got them all in one place and you did a killer job doing it. There's another tweet you have that I think is really important for sort of the, the beginning of your company. And you said the biggest dilution event for startups is when they're founded and equity is split between co-founders. Think about that for a minute. Uh, I know when you started MicroAcquire, you started it by yourself. When I started Andy Hackers, I also made the decision to start it by myself. Why did you Why did you not want a co-founder? Why did you think this is something you can get done alone as a solo founder? So I've I've never had a co-founder ever. I don't know. I just work faster in the beginning. Like when I get the idea, I just go. Um, so, and I think you know, there's a framework that again we're going back into kind of like the typical expectations of a successful startup, you got to have a couple of co-founders, you know, need to have complementary skill sets. Hopefully you worked at Google or Apple pedigrees from like certain school. Like for me, I guess I, I just don't see the benefit in the early days, at least for me, because it's easier when you have one person that can make all the decisions and everything isn't just a debate. Plus, you have a 65% chance of breaking up with your co-founder. So you have a higher chance of breaking up with your co-founder than getting divorced. And I don't think people really understand how many startups fail because of co-founder conflicts. Like I get it for, you know, you know, the mental support and stuff like that, but there's other ways to get it. But, but I mean, I don't want to say like anti-co-founders, blah, blah, blah. I, I've just never had them. So I don't have experience benefiting from them. My experience has always been just building the business first, getting it off the ground. And then that's when I feel comfortable bringing others into the business to help. What set of skills do you think you need to do that? Like, what is it about you that makes it possible for you to like single-handedly get these businesses off the ground? Uh, you got to be good at everything. We got to be great at nothing. Like you got to know how to manage product. You got to be able to market, sell, um, handle customer support it's, it's not easy, but again, it goes back to, I just, I wanted it bad enough. I, I, I graduated college with like a 2.07, um, GPA, which is actually, uh, the Chico state record for lowest graduating GPA. <laughs> uh, I don't come from a family with money or anything like that. Um, you know, I just, I wanted, you know, my first company to work bad enough and I just constantly learned like, how did I learn how to manage product teams? Well, I just hired an engineer and then I read some articles some books kind of self-taught, like, you know, reached out to others for help. Um, so I think you just have to have that sort of like that motivation that like you really, really, really want this to work. And there's no way you're going to let this company fail. Another tweet you've made in this vein is that entrepreneurships and startups are a game of grit, not intelligence. And that speaks to me because I think if you're a gritty, hardworking founder, obviously you are, even if you don't necessarily know exactly what the plan is and exactly what's going to work, uh, if you're getting like, you know, three or four different shots on goal every week, you're going to eventually find out what works. Whereas somebody who's not working that hard, who quits early, who gives up, um, they're only going to get like a few shots a year and they're going to give up. <laughs> and so... I really like that sort of mental approach to it. And I wonder if that applied to MicroAcquire. You know, like how much was MicroAcquire you just working really hard and sticking through tough times and figuring things out versus how much of it was you making really good decisions and just knowing what to do? 
again, I launched it and I had no idea how I was going to make money, but I knew there was the market opportunity there. And I've always used startups as, you know, you have an idea, but it's, it's iterated over and over and over, usually through customer feedback. And so, you know, the more I talked to customers and the more excitement that I heard from them, I knew there was something there. And so that motivated me to keep going. Um, and I think a lot of, unfortunately, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they do give up too early because they think, you know, year one is going to be zero to a million. Year two is going to be <laughs> one to 10 million. But it really was like that for you. I mean, like it really was like super successful for you in the first year. You know, like, were there times where you like you did have to eat class? Were there times with MicroQuire where it was like, I'm on the wrong track and I need to, to change things up? Um, I, I think... I think I benefited definitely from just market tailwinds. Like I launched a business uh, right as COVID started. So, you know, that was interesting. And then I'd, I, prior to that, a lot of people don't know this, but I was chief revenue officer at a venture back company called Spiff. So I was building this business on the side. And then once their series A's, A closed, I resigned to focus on microquare full time. That was in June. So that was at the peak of basically, we have no idea what's going to happen with COVID. Right. Um, so that's where I had enough um, like belief in this business. I just said, um, like they offered me um, basically everything from president to chief staff to VP of like revenue, any anything I wanted, VP of strategy. But I said, like this micro acquire business that I've been you know working on the side, like like I this is the video game I want to play. Like so, I'm gonna resign, and that's when I really jumped into it. So, I mean, yeah, that was, that was a scary moment. I left, you know, a very high paying job at a company that's doing very well now. Um, mm -hmm. I highly recommend them if you're doing sales commission calculations manually in Excel. That's what they do. They automate sales commission calculations for large sales teams. I had a blast working with them, but, you know, that was a tough time. You know, I went from like a team that I absolutely loved working with, but I knew that if I didn't make the jump, you know, I got them to like the series a and it's like, okay, guys, you can hire people way smarter than me now. Um, I'm out. I love you all. Uh, I catch up with them all the time. We had so much fun together, but I knew if I didn't leave at that point, I'd regret it. And I, I'm also a big, I think about regret a lot in terms of, you know, it's usually the things that you don't do that you regret and the things that you do do that you regret. Right. And so bias towards I, action. Yeah. So I, I saw momentum and microquire people, were, people started acquiring companies. I'm like, holy shit. This bit, <laughs> can, I, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. You can say whatever you want. I was like, holy shit. Like companies are getting acquired and like, they're sending me the nicest emails. And like, I remember meeting like the founder of a public company and I was like starstruck. I was like, how am I like, how are these people finding this? This is insane. <laughs> it, it just brought so much positive energy that's where I knew I wanted to be. And so I made a jump during a very scary time, a business with no, no, I had no way, no idea how I was going to generate revenue. Um, it was in the middle of the pandemic. Um, so great time. You actually is a good time to start a business because that's, you know, the, when people are usually not launching businesses, but it was scary. I mean, I didn't know what the future held. I didn't know MicroGuard was going to be successful. At, at that time, revenue was zero. So I was jumping from that to zero. Um, but it just it brought me so much like positive energy. And I enjoyed it so much that 
I knew I would regret it if I didn't jump in full time. So I, I would say that was probably the hardest time. Um, and then after that, just having to work that hard, I feel like at times I, I had to will the business into existence. Um, yeah. and that, that was mentally draining for a while. I've, I've hired help since, thank gosh. What did that look like? Was that just you sending lots of cold email? Is it you staying up? late you know working late into the night like what does it mean to i was working like probably i mean 5 a.m to midnight every single night doing what uh every every part of the business so when startups come in i'd review them i'd speak with the founders improve their profiles write the newsletter which at one point uh i'd send out every week now we send it out every day because our deal flow has increased uh so i was writing those all social media posts, um, every piece of content that you see on our website, all copy on the on the front of the website. The only help I had was on the actual engineering side. So I hired an agency to help with you know the website, the marketplace, but customer support. I was on live chat. I do live chat for my phone. On top of that, I had just become a dad. I became a dad um, October 29th, two years ago. So my son's about to turn two. So you might you might drop us on his birthday. Uh, so, you know, there's, so I, I had, you know, family duties I had to take care of. You just have to want it bad enough. And for me, just the reward of like helping entrepreneurs in like one of the most like life-changing moments of their career, just, that was something I, I just had to pursue. And so, so I, we're almost out of time. I'll leave you with, with. One more question from another tweet of yours that I really enjoyed, which was that lots of people will give you advice on how to build or grow your startup, but listen to your intuition because you're the closest to your business and you're the one living it every day. How do you think um, a brand new founder should think about this? I mean, your experience, you've been starting companies since you were basically a kid. A lot of people are like, I'm 35, I'm 45, I've never done this before in my life, but I'm taking a leap. How can they learn to trust their intuition and, and know that it's the right thing to do when they're sort of swimming in the sea of advice from every single angle telling them what they should do? Well, I'll tell you a story about business apps that changed the, the trajectory of the business forever. There was a guy in Switzerland. He was building apps for these big Ramada hotels. And I this was when we were at like 15K annual recurring revenue, very, very small. And I was also just running the business solo. Um, I had friends in college where we tried cold calling restaurants for about a couple of months, didn't work out, they left. So this was like a dark time in business apps where it was just me alone in like a 500 square foot office, probably the size of this room. And I reached out to this guy in Switzerland and he had a marketing agency. And he told me that he was basically building these apps on behalf of the hotels and not for the hotels. Um, that he owned. I assumed he was just really rich and owned him. And so I asked him, how can I help you sell more applications? And then he opened my eyes to a go-to-market model uh, where we white labeled our product. We ended up partnering with um, a lot of web agencies. Instead of trying to sell you know, one mobile app to one small business at a time, we started selling hundreds at a time. That changed the business. Like We went from like flat to like but my point being is like, okay, so you got all this, you know, advice, but you know, you're closest to the business. And so, you know, when you talk to customers and you keep hearing like the same thing, you can read one tweet in mine and be like, Hey, that's, that's kind of cool. But if you keep hearing the same thing over and over from customers, or if a customer gives you an idea and is willing to pay for it, 
you know, that's when like you should use your intuition, which is better. Like probably the customer that is willing to pay for a product that you haven't even built yet. And that this has happened many, many times in microquire too, where, you know, a lot of our competitors or, you know, I don't know if we really have any direct competitors that I can pull from, but, you know, they focus a lot on pleasing, you know, the buyer, you know, the buyer, that's the most important part of the business is the buyer. But I'm like, no, it's the founder. We want to empower the founders to, you know, be more equipped when they're speaking with buyers. We want to help them maximize their exit. No one's doing that. Everyone is favoring the buyer. And so I kind of went the other way because that was my intuition as a founder where I didn't want to help buyers. I wanted to help entrepreneurs and startups. And so that is a core value of MicroQuire is we always say that, you know, our goal is to help founders succeed and we want to build the most founder friendly marketplace in the world. And so, you know, that was a guess that was just like, Hey, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm trusting my intuition of yeah. what's a marketplace I trust. And it's one that speaks to me as a founder and not, Hey, this is where you get really cheap deals and stuff. Right. Like that. So I love it. And it speaks to what you said a few times in this episode, which is you're kind of building the video game that you want to play. And if what you want to do in your particular business is serve founders and build the best marketplace for founders, that's the best bet to make because number one, you might be right. And number two, that's what you actually authentically are going to enjoy doing. And number three, that's your intuition. Those are the people you want to serve. So I like this idea of listening to your customers and also pairing that with being very deliberate about the customers that you want to serve. Uh, Andrew, thanks a ton for coming on the show. Do you want to tell listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to with all these different businesses and initiatives? Yeah. First of all, thanks so much for um, having me on. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And um, if you want to learn more about MicroQuire, just microquire.com and um, uh, maybe follow me on Twitter. I like to tweet or add me on LinkedIn. So MicroQuire, um, a Gazeki. All right. Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you.